Thank you for listening to Together for Peace with Reem Gunaim. Thank you everyone for uh, being part of our journey to shed light on the sustainable solutions for peace. We live in a world where the most peaceful nations on earth continue to become more peaceful, while the least peaceful places continue to deteriorate. At a time where the peace and equality gap continues to grow, we have a responsibility to take action and reverse this trend. We reverse this trend by protecting human rights for all people. We must start by engaging in positive conversations to build mutual understanding and embrace the discomfort of learning and evolving. Each time we collaborate and grow together, we actively promote peace equality. Together for Peace is a global platform for agents of change from all walks of life. We generate conversations that motivate, educate, and activate our online community to cultivate peace solutions that care. Together, we will globally fill the gap to solve peace inequality. Peter Kyle is a dynamic global leader. He is the director of Rotary Zones 33 and 34, representing the Mid-Atlantic, Southeastern USA, and Caribbean nations. He has many passions, outward bound, rotary, and law. Peter fell in love with outer bound after completing his first course in 1966 learning that he is more than he thinks he thinks he is over the years he evolved to become the inaugural chair of outer bound international for six years until he was appointed chairman emeritus there seems to be a pattern in his life just like in outer bound peter fell in love with rotary whenever he falls in love with the mission peter is laser focused to grow the mission and with it continues to grow himself you may know Peter as a Rotary International Director. What you may not be aware of is that Peter himself first joined Rotary as an ambassadorial scholar in 1973 to pursue his postgraduate studies in international law. This scholarship had him travel across the ocean from New Zealand to the United States where he pursued his studies at the University of Virginia. Peter's love for law as a vehicle for service led him to serve on the World Bank as a senior attorney for 16 years. Peter rises to any challenge. He joined the World Bank during a global economic crisis. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Peter was instrumental in the revitalization of the republics through economic reform. Peter continued to support the economic development of over 80 nations through his work with the World Bank. In 2010, Peter was awarded the Rotary Foundation Global Alumni Service Award to Humanity to honor his outstanding career and service to the world that was empowered by his Rotary scholarship and character. Five years later, he received the citation for um, meritorious service, I don't know if I spelled that correctly, uh, awarded by the Rotary Foundation for Outstanding Rotarian um, Achievement. I have had the honor of knowing Peter over the years as a leader driven by his values of humanity, kindness and compassion to lead goodwill, understanding and peace in the world. Peter's hard work, intentional leadership and continued growth allows him to be the dynamic leader he is and the dynamic leader our world desperately needs today. We are thankful for his high values for which he leads, the novelty of his ideas 
and for the consistently striving um, for a better future for all. Without further ado, please welcome Peter Kyle. Peter, we're so happy to have you on, on this Together for Peace platform. And um, I'd like to start by, we were talking before the official introduction about your character and about how many people around the world have, um, you've had a positive impact on them and, um, and that they were inspired by your character. So when was the moment, can you tell us about the moment in your um, high school when you listened to the commencement speech that shaped, started shaping your character, that was a moment that was instrumental um, in your life. Well, thank you, Reem, for uh, both the introduction, a very gracious and overly generous introduction. I'm delighted to be with you today and with whoever else is on the call. Um, so when I look back, as, as is the case with all of us, there are many people in the course of our lives who have an impact on the trajectory of our careers and our lives and many events that sort of stand out. And one of the very first events that had an impact on me was actually at my high school graduation, 1964, long time ago. The guest speaker was the Governor General of New Zealand. Uh, the Governor General is the representative of the Queen the head of state of New Zealand is the Queen of England. She's the Queen of many countries and she's the Queen of New Zealand. And the Governor General is her representative. Uh, so having the Governor General as our graduation speaker on a very small scale is a bit like having the United States President at yeah. one commencement. So we were very excited to have the Governor General. And he made a great impact on me. He's a, he was a wonderful speaker. His name was Lord Cobham. And the message I received was, life is not a spectator sport. You need to engage. You need to participate. Uh, whether it's in sport, in music, in the theater, in religion, whatever it is, find something about which you are passionate and give it 100%, give it 150%. And if you find after time that that's not the right activity for you, it's not a right fit, then change course and find something else. Uh, and those, that message, uh, that principle has, has sort of resonated with me for many, many years. And when I look back on my life, um, apart from family, which of course is primary, I, I think I can, I can think of three threads um, to my life. One is the law, one is outward bound, and one is rotary. I've done you know, some other things from time to time, uh, but I've stuck with the law, I've stuck with outward bound, I've stuck with rotary. Uh, and each have been a very important part of my life, and they've each, in a curious way, they've each interacted. Uh, so it was that, that initial uh, speech way back in 64 that really continues to have an impact on my thinking and my career. Wow, that's uh, really a powerful story. What um, that words has weight, and you never know who's receiving them and how uh, you know the they're received by young people. And and so that's that's really an inspiring story, Peter. So you went on after your high school, um, or maybe uh, to build your character even farther by joining a course with Outerbound. 
Can you tell us about that experience and what you've learned from it? Right. Well, when I turned 19 uh, in New Zealand, I became eligible for the military draft for conscription. But you were only called up if your birthday fell on a certain date. And I missed the lottery. And my father, who was, uh, had an army background, was so disappointed, uh, he decided to enroll me in the next worst form of torture he could think of, uh, which was Outward Bound. The Outward Bound program had just started in New Zealand. So I went off to Outward Bound. Uh, it's an outdoor experiential education program. At that time, it was for young people. Uh, I loved it. Um, two days after I completed the course, I went to a, a cocktail party to report on my experience. And for my sins, I was invited to become the secretary of the local Outward Bound Association. And that was the start of what became a 40-year association uh, with Outward Bound. And I, I've had all sorts of uh, assignments um, culminating in becoming the, uh, the world chairman for Outward Bound International in 1996. Um, I was the chair of the board of directors for six years. I reported to Prince Philip, the husband of the Queen. He was the patron of Outward Bound. Every year for six years, I had the, uh, the, the delight, the pleasure of going to Buckingham Palace and reporting to Prince Philip in person about the status of Outward Bound. So Outward Bound has had a remarkable impact. And there you see a photo, that's my daughter. Um, that's Prince Philip on the left. Um, and that's me, me on the right. Uh, a very important uh, occasion that was in London at a cocktail party at uh, St. James Palace. That's remarkable. Um, and it just testifies to the importance of uh, Outer Bound Mission. So if you would sum it for the people who don't know about um, outer, uh, Outward uh, Band, um, what is Outer Bound Mission or goal for our, for, for our youth and our communities and the world? Well, the, the purpose of Outward Bound in a nutshell uh, is to prove that if you try a little harder, you can do a little better. Uh, there are around 50 Outward Bound schools around the world, and each one of them uh, involve a variety of physical and mountain, uh, mental challenges, in some cases by the sea, in some cases by the mountains, and they're all designed to, to test you and to prove uh, that you can run a little harder, you, faster, you can climb a little higher, just when you think you've reached the limits of your endurance or your, your mental state, you are encouraged to keep going, push a little harder. And that, I think that's a very important lesson. And again, it's a lesson that has remained with me uh, throughout. Often I have, I have situations where I think, oh, I, I can't do this, or I don't want to do that, or that's too tough. Or, uh, and then something, something inside says, you can do this. Keep going, try a little harder, give another speech. Uh, so that's the philosophy of Outward Bound. I think it's very important. And, uh, and I think it's important for young people today in particular. Um, the, the reason, that the background to Outward Bound is interesting. During the Second World War, uh, many British merchant vessels were being torpedoed by German submarines. 
and the naval authorities in England found that young people in their late teens, early 20s, were giving up and dying and drowning. The older, older people in their 40s and 50s were hanging on, and the naval authorities thought that this was wrong. People in their late teens, their 20s, they're in the prime of their life. They, they should be hanging in there. They should be more resilient. So a school was established by a very famous, well-known German educator known as, known as Kurt Hahn in Gordonston in the north of Scotland. Uh, Prince Philip went to the school. Prince Charles went to the school. And the school, in addition to the normal academic subjects, focused on exposing the students to a whole variety of activities, all designed to encourage them uh, to believe in themselves, to push harder, to push themselves, try a bit harder. Uh, and I think that was an important lesson at that time that continues to be important. Outward Bound is still a very successful organization around the world. And particularly when we, we are so, so easy to succumb to video games and to sit around and and not really extend ourselves, I think the Outward Bound experience uh, is a very valuable one for young people in particular, for everybody, but for young people in particular. So if you get a chance to go to an Outward Bound school, an Outward Bound course, grab it. Wow, this is um, an interesting story. For me, listening to you, I'm thinking a mindset that allows you to believe in yourself and that you're capable of doing more is really the, literally the difference uh, from history between death and life. Um, and, and what you've um, described also in, inspires me to think of you as the embodiment of Peter, of um, outward, outward Bound mission, because you continued as, you started as um, a student, as a recipient of their course, and you uh, continued to serve until you became their first chair of the international board so, and you've initiated that international board when it didn't exist, you were part of the people who initiated it. So you pushed the envelope even a little bit more for the organization even, not just for yourself. So can you tell us more about uh, why becoming international for Outward Bound was an important uh, decision or initiative or? In well, I, I think I've always had uh, an interest in international activities, uh, much more so than sort of local activities. Um, I went to a number of international conferences in the late 70s, early 80s, Outward Bound conferences. I met a lot of people who had similar values, similar interests, uh, and I thought, uh, why do we not develop an international Outward Bound uh, organization? So it took me quite some time. It took about a year. I had to draft a lot of legal documents and uh, negotiate with lots of independent Outward Bound schools around the world. But eventually we formed Outward Bound International and it continues to be a very strong and very vibrant uh, organization. And uh, I love my association with Outward Bound and I, I continue as a chairman emeritus as I said, it's just a very important part of my life uh, for a long time. Thank you, Peter.
So we've covered your first passion. That's outer. I don't think it's covered because it's continuing to be part of your Rotary, even initiative later on. We will learn about that. Uh, but let's move to your second passion, and that's law. Uh, so how did you uh, stumble um, um, with uh, stumble upon law and realizing that this is your passion? Uh, well, when I graduated from high school, I went off to university. At that time, economics was the in subject. Uh, so I decided to do a bachelor's degree in economics, uh, and that took three years. And at the end of the three years, I graduated. Uh, but I really didn't enjoy economics. Uh, when I was at school, I did various vocational tests. Uh, and they indicated that uh, I had a, a potential to be first a lawyer, secondly, a solicitor, thirdly, a barrister and solicitor. And my mother always wanted me to take up law. So once I finished my BA, I uh, decided to embark upon a law degree and I, I really enjoyed the law. I did, I did well. Um, uh, I served a stint as the clerk to the Chief Justice of New Zealand, which is a pretty prestigious position in the, in, in the legal community. And that led to a, a long career in the law, in private practice, and then in the, with the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, and in the World Bank. So um, I've had various opportunities in, in the law, um, and I, I continue to uh, enjoy the legal aspects of uh, of society and issues that come up. And that, <laughs> that was on the day that I was admitted as a barrister and solicitor of the Supreme Court of New Zealand. Wow. You may think that that's my normal white hair. <laughs> in fact, it's a wig. And underneath the wig uh, is solid black hair. Hard to believe that there was a time when I had black hair. Well, I actually, this is off topic, but I've always wondered watching the lawyers, like we see in history, lawyers wearing those white wigs. What's the symbolism of this? Is there a meaning for it? Well, I think it goes back to the early days of, of law in England. Um, the formal address, the formal dress for lawyers 200 years ago uh, was more or less the same as what you see there with a gown and a, a special necktie and a wig. Um, I, uh, just an interesting anecdote, Margaret and I got married in 1977. We went off to England. Uh, we had a three month honeymoon in, in Europe. And a couple of days after I arrived in London, I went to the wig maker, Eden Ravenscroft, which are the, the, the famous wig makers for all wigs all around the world. And I had my head measured. It took several hours to measure every dimension of my head. And then two months later, just before we left England to come back to New Zealand to practice law, I went and had a fitting for my wig. It fitted well, and I came home with a wig. And it cost 900 pounds, not, not okay. cheap. Um, uh, so whenever I went to court, uh, I would wear a wig. And, and, New Zealand, and lawyers in New Zealand still wear wigs in court and the old judges no longer wear wigs but they, they when I was in practicing law they did wear wigs. That's that's interesting well uh, hearing it from a lawyer himself a uh, very seasoned uh, accomplished lawyer is it makes sense now 
So, um, Peter, uh, you said that you went on to work with the World Bank and you were there as, as a senior attorney, international law attorney. And one of your major projects was really um, helping the World Bank um, intervention at the after the collapse of the so Soviet Union to help the republics um, after the Soviet Union um, collapse, uh, really, um, uh, with their economic development. So. Tell us more about um, what was, why was that the strategy for the World Bank and what was your role in it? Well, as you mentioned, in 1991, the for former Soviet Union collapsed and all the republics uh, became independent countries. Uh, in each case, their economies uh, were in tatters. Uh, in most cases, the economy was not functioning and it was a very dire situation. One of the first things they did uh, was to join both the International Monetary Fund to get access to short-term financing and to join the World Bank to get access to long-term financing. And the immediate objective uh, was to get the economies moving so that people could work and get be paid and, and buy food and so on. But one of the issues was that uh, they needed to have foreign investment to come in and uh, take over the factories and the other investment opportunities. And foreign investors would not uh, be interested in participating unless and until the legal framework was in place to allow that to happen. And one of the first things that had to be done was to transfer ownership of the assets. All, everything in Russia in those days was owned by the state. That was what socialism was all about. So we had to devise a method for transferring ownership of the productive assets in Russia and all the other republics uh, to the private sector so that foreign investors would have the incentive to come in and purchase and, and restart the economy. And for that to happen, uh, the bank needed lawyers with a privatization uh, background. And it just so happened that I was in New Zealand quite happily practicing law but I did the, the legal work for the first privatization transaction in New Zealand. We, we merged a number of community savings banks into one bank, and then we uh, transferred ownership uh, from the state to the private sector. Uh, the World Bank heard about that experience. So one day, out of the blue, I received a phone call from Washington. Would I be interested in moving to uh, the World Bank? Uh, and I thought about that for about half a second. Uh, immediately, I had visions of no more uh, timesheets, no more partners meetings, no more practice development meetings, no more why hasn't your client paid his bills meetings. Six months later, Margaret and I, and our two children, Shannon and, and Chris, uh, moved back to America, back to the same district where I had studied as a, a scholar some 20 years previously. And that was the start of uh, an exciting time. Two weeks after I arrived in Washington, I was on a plane to Moscow and I spent the next five years uh, commuting on a fairly regular basis to Moscow, to Kiev, to Almaty uh, and other parts of the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, working on the, the privatization framework uh, and, and advising along with others uh, on how to transition from a socialist legal system 
to a legal system based on, on market principles. It was exciting stuff. There was, no, there was no template, there was no textbook, no precedents. We were inventing as we went along. Uh, sort of stuff you tell your grandchildren about. So uh, it was an exciting start to my World Bank career. Very interesting to, for, I mean, for everyone who is not familiar with the Soviet Union collapse, a lot of people um, who are younger relatively will be watching this on social media. Can you tell us a brief um, historic lesson about why the Soviet Union um, the structure of communism uh, collapsed? Is it like the centralized government? Like, is there, what are, what would you describe the elements that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union from just your experience being there and trying to transition that into private sector? Is there like key elements? Uh, well, that's, that's a big question. Uh, I think there are lots of factors. I, I think in a, in a short sentence, the system collapsed upon itself. The legal system was unable to cope with uh, the demands of the, of the socialist economy. Factories were not producing quality products. Exports were not uh, being successful because the quality of exports was not good. People were not getting paid. Uh, the, the economy generally in all those countries was spiraling downwards. And it got to a point where, as I said, the system really just could not any longer uh, sustain that economic model. Uh, and, and there were political factors involved, there were other factors involved. And I think in the case of Russia in particular, which was the first of the republics to, to declare independence, it was really a culmination of various factors. And you, you really need to discuss that with economists and political scientists. From my perspective, from a legal perspective, it was very clear to me that the, the legal system uh, was no longer able to, there was no functioning court system. Uh, there was no efficient, effective way of contract enforcement. Contracts were not being honored. Uh, you couldn't rely on the legal system uh, to govern the economic system. And that's, that's, a, that's a recipe for disaster. You, you must have a vibrant, efficient, functioning legal system to sustain uh, any form of economy. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, um, so privatization is really taking the basic, like decentralizing the, uh, the control of the government on the economy and really empowering the, the communities to really lead the economic development and uh, what you've done was really helping uh, in that transition. And you've worked with uh, leaders in Russia to, to do that, the leaders of the Republic. Is there any, um, did you face any challenges or were they excited about this transition? Like what was your observation about that transition from their perspective? Well, I think in the case of the Russians, um, this was a difficult time for them. Um, in a sense, they were having to come to the West to be bailed out. Um, and and that, that's not an easy situation for any, any uh, country. And I think the, uh, the Russians were very proud people. Uh, they wanted the same things that you and I want, uh, health, prosperity, um, and, and they were 
what Sir Ed saddened, um, that uh, the, the system, which had been much vaunted by their political leaders, had let them down. Uh, and they were having to, um, as I said, come to the, the Western countries uh, for economic support. Uh, and, and that, that um, degree of embarrassment, if you like, I think is, has been carried through and we see it now. I think the Russians uh, would like to restore the glory of the former Soviet Union. Uh, like any country, the Russians are proud people. They have a, an amazing history, amazing art, music, in many areas. Russia is quite an extraordinary country. I, I so enjoyed my time there and, and in the other republics. Um, so I think that's really what was at the heart of, of the, uh, the recovery process, the, the desire to uh, reform and regain their position in the world as one of the leading economies as befits a country of the size of Russia and, and with the population that Russia, Russia has. That's such a compassionate observation, Peter, from like a peace builder to you're there trying to help and uh, utilize the world systems uh, to, to give them a hand, uh, but also with the understanding of where they, what, how they feel and where they come from. It's, it's really considerate and insightful. Um, so, which is makes you a perfect Rotarian. So tell, let's shift. <laughs> Uh, let's shift gears and talk about Rotary. Uh, you first joined uh, Rotary as a peace, uh, as a scholar, ambassadorial scholar. Uh, can you tell us about that journey with uh, going, you know, moving? How did you join? How did help? How did Rotary really help you um, gain this international um, career in law? And yeah. So. One day in New Zealand, at the end of my, I think my third year of law studies, I went up to the university one lunch hour uh, to see, to get my exam results. In those days, they were posted on a notice board. And uh, after satisfying myself that I had passed the exams, I then sort of scanned the, the other notices on the board. Uh, and I, my eye was, my attention was drawn to a, a notice which said, Rotary Foundation Ambassadorial Scholarship. Um, and I read that notice, I think, three times, maybe four times. All my, all my young life, I had wanted to join New Zealand's Foreign Service to be a diplomat. And here was that word, ambassadorial. Uh, and the more I read it, the more I thought, this is, this is tailor-made for me. It's overseas study. Uh, there was an ambassadorial dimension, and I thought that I could handle that. So that night, I called the, the number, the name on the, on the notice. His name was Dennis Pinfold. And that was the start of an amazing relationship, which continues. He's in his 90s. He's in New Zealand. We still interact on a regular basis. We met a few days later. Uh, I started preparing the application. And uh, in due course, I was selected. Um, and in those days, and I think it may still be the same, you had to nominate five universities around the world where you would like to do your studies. Um, and you were given preference if you chose universities other than Harvard or Yale or Oxford or Cambridge, uh, and preference for countries uh, where the, native, the language was different from your own. 
So I chose five universities, um, uh, including the University of Virginia. And that was my top choice. And I was thrilled that the trustees of the Rotary Foundation assigned me to University of Virginia. Uh, I then had to be admitted like any other student. And then I went off in 1973. And uh, it was a a transformational year. We often use that word transformational a bit glibly, but in my case, it really was. It was the year of Watergate, a very exciting time for a young lawyer. <laughs> that's, uh, that's me on the right, striding up to get my degree from the, uh, the, the Dean of the Law School, Monrad Paulson. Uh, so it was an exciting time to be in America. Every day we would rush out and buy copies of the Washington Post and the New York Times, we had special trips up to the Supreme Court, to the Congress, we debated the issues in class. Uh, I had to give many presentations to Rotary Clubs, I went to many events. Um, and it, it really, it was the start of a love affair with Rotary and a love affair with America. Uh, I had studied uh, at school and at university, I'd studied American politics, American economic history. Uh, <coughs> so I knew a lot about America before I went. But to be in America during Watergate, I mean, at any, any time in, in life, uh, it's, it's so impactful. But that was a, a particularly impactful year. Um, and I remember when I, I left America, I went by boat uh, from New York to Southampton, the most long-winded way around to get back to New Zealand. And I cried as, as the boat was the SS France, the biggest passenger liner afloat at that time. And as these four big tugs pulled this boat out of the, out of the harbor on the Hudson River, and we slowly sailed past the Statue of Liberty under the Verrazano Bridge out into the Atlantic. And this was the end of, of an amazing adventure. And I, I really cried. Uh, and I never imagined for a moment that one day I would find myself back in America. Um, and it was just, Amazing that some 20 years later, I'd come back to America. 10 years later, my daughter graduated from the University of Virginia. Five years later, my son graduated from the University of Virginia. And you can imagine my pride as I watched first my daughter, then my son process uh, down the lawn of Mr. Jefferson's University as I had done 30 years previously. So uh, it was a significant rotary moment in my life. Wow, what a beautiful, heartwarming story. Um, Peter, why did you fall in love with America around that time? What did, what did you know about America that resonated with you at that time? If you would articulate Just that. Just to mention that, the photo on the screen uh, is the lawn at the University of Virginia, and that building at the end is the Rotunda, which is probably the most significant building on the campus at the University of Virginia. Um, I don't know where you found that photo, Liam. That's uh, I, I was stalking you on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, America. America is a very addictive place. I mean, everybody uh, aspires to come to America. We look up to America. Um, I remember when when I was looking at universities. Um, most young New Zealanders tend to gravitate towards England. That's the mother country. We are very much an English country. 
but I wanted to go to America. America for me was sort of more exciting. Uh, I knew if I went to England, I would have a sherry uh, every Wednesday night. There'd be a nice tutorial. Uh, it would all be very pleasant, but I didn't think that I would be extended in quite the same way. And, and, and that was my experience. I had some amazing professors at UVA um, and it was a very intellectually, uh, intellectually demanding, but intellectually exciting time, right? We, were, we studied uh, international law. We dealt with real international uh, legal issues that were current in Vietnam, uh, the Gulf of Aqaba, various other uh, international issues. So it was just a, uh, a very exciting time. I, I, I'd sort of done corporate law, I'd been involved in taxation, but that experience made me think that really what I wanted to do was some sort of international law. So when the World Bank opportunity came up many years later, uh, again, it was preordained uh, that I should go to the World Bank and uh, I would go back to the World Bank tomorrow. I loved the work, I think it was meaningful. I think I would have made much more money in private practice in New Zealand. Uh, but all I would have been doing was shuffling money from one undeserving cause to another. There's nothing socially redeeming about uh, legal practice with apologies to the lawyers in the audience. Whereas in the World Bank, I felt, and I can point to many things that I was involved with, many projects and many advice that we tended, uh, which had a, a significant impact on the development of, of the countries in which we were working. So, uh, Absolutely. So Peter, I have a lot to, un, um, you know, to um, untangle here or like to process. One of the things that come to mind is being a student at a time of a critical time in American history, like Watergate, Vietnam War. Would you describe that the environment was more open for debate and discussion than what we have to today? Like were there like intellectual debates that was where people on one, like there was a variety of intellectual conversations or was there like one, like, or two, like how would you describe the environment of like idea and debate and openness of like freedom of speech? Well, I, I, I think so. I mean, this was the post Vietnam era. Uh, Vietnam had uh, and still has a major impact on U.S. Uh, foreign policy of the thinking, um, a major impact on the psyche of Americans. Watergate also. Watergate was a, perhaps the beginning of uh, a sense that there was, uh, the government could not always be trusted or relied upon. So there was a lot of debate, a lot of discussion. Uh, and I think, we, and we were, we were encouraged to debate these issues. Um, whether there was more debate then or now, I don't know. I don't think so. I think uh, there's every bit as much discussion now. The topics are different. Uh, but that's one of the great things about America. There's a lot of debate, a lot of discussion, a lot of analysis. Sometimes perhaps uh, we overanalyze, we overthink uh, issues. But I think that, that would be better than the opposite. I think the, uh, the fact that uh, Americans uh, are so well informed 
are so able to articulate their views uh, and have uh, strong views on some of these issues. That's an important part of a democratic society. And I think that should be encouraged and the debate should be uh, encouraged. And young people should be given every opportunity to express their views. We didn't get, our generation didn't get it right. Um, so uh, we look to the next generation or the one after that um, to improve. I, mean, if you, I don't want to get too tacky, but this is all part of making the United States a more perfect union. And the same is true for every country. Absolutely. Uh, we are enriched by our different perspectives and, uh, and that's how uh, we all evolve together and grow. So uh, back to the World Bank, you said you, you really love the World Bank and the mission by which it serves um, the, the nations of the world. Can you tell us briefly what is really the mission of the World Bank? And you've done that mission in over 80 countries around the world, uh, utilizing your law and uh, degree and rotary principles and character. Uh, so tell us more about the mission of the World Bank and what, what is it that you really loved about working there? Well, the, the principal objective of the World Bank is to promote economic development. It was created after the Second World War, uh, and the object at that time was to assist with the reconstruction of Europe. The formal name of the World Bank is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Uh, so the bank was heavily involved in reconstruction after the Second World War, and then it became more involved in developmental activities all around the world. The World Bank is the, is the world's leading developmental organization, international development organization. Uh, the foreign aid budgets of, of most countries in the world flow through the World Bank. The World Bank is the entity that actually implements the projects. Um, uh, there are other development banks, the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, and there are others. But the World Bank is, is, is the largest. It's based in Washington, D.C. It has branches all around the world. Um, it has a, around, I think, around 13 or 14,000 employees. Uh, and their primary role is to process uh, loans uh, to countries that would not otherwise be eligible to receive uh, international financing. The World Bank was backed by the full faith and credit of the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Switzerland, all the countries, all the developed countries. So it has a very high credit rating. It can borrow money on the credit markets of the world at a very uh, low rate. And it is able to pass on the benefit of that low rate to the developing countries for which it uh, serves. But that finance is made available on the basis of conditions. And the conditionality uh, of the World Bank uh, is sometimes uh, very strict. Um, the World Bank uh, is able to require that governments change policies, pass laws, do a whole range of things uh, which they might not otherwise want to do, but have to do in order to get the financing. Uh, and that can become very political, very contentious. There are many examples of uh, World Bank uh, loans which have been uh, criticized heavily uh, because of 
what is perceived to be excessively onerous conditions. Yeah. My role in the bank was more on the advisory side. I wasn't so much involved in the lending side. I, I worked with governments to uh, help create the, the legal framework, the private sector, the financial sector, the infrastructure laws necessary for uh, these economies to operate. Um, so after the, after the, the sort of completed the privatization focus that I mentioned, uh, I became much more heavily involved in, in banking sector reform. In the late 90s, we had the Asian financial crisis, which revealed all sorts of weaknesses in the central banking uh, framework around the world. So I worked closely with the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, on banking sector reform, central banking sector reform. Uh, and that's another exciting, uh, exciting area to be involved with. And then I got more involved in specialized projects in, in Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan and Pakistan and Morocco. Um, different sort of projects, but just a fascinating career. As I said, I would go back to the bank tomorrow. I love to work and I, I feel that uh, I was able in a small way uh, to make a difference in, in many different countries in ways that I could never have done in private practice in, in New Zealand. That's fascinating uh, work to really be um, in a position to help people make or leaders make decisions that would impact millions of people. Um, and it's such a tremendous responsibility. And I'm personally thrilled to know that you were the person uh, doing that. Uh, thank you, Peter, for that amazing uh, service. So for that service and amazing work, you were awarded um, a very prestigious alumni um, award from Rotary International as their scholar, um, um, ambassadorial scholar and also a Rotarian, a very exceptional Rotarian. You are on the Rotary uh, International Board of Directors now as a director. So um, obviously Rotary invests in young people who, uh, and, and gives them scholarships. And there's a Rotary Peace Fellowship Program that we've talked about briefly uh, before the interview. Um, can you share with us why um, investing in young people um, has a huge return on investment for the humanitarian work and the mission of Rotary. And um, can you share with us the story of um, the Peace Fellows from Nairobi, for example? Well, to answer the first question, I mean, I, I think young people have the passion, they have the idealism, uh, they have the technological capability that my generation doesn't have. Um, and, and that's true throughout history. We rely on young people to, to regenerate, to, to re-enthuse, to re-educate, uh, and, and this generation is no different. Um, and and what, what is so plain to me is I've, I've had so much to do with the Peace Fellows. These, the Peace Fellows are amazing. Um, oh, there we are. This is, the, this is in the Security Council of the United Nations, and on the left, uh, that's visiting the University of Brisbane with one of the Rotary staff members. Uh, and the tree, I think, was planted by Ian, past president Ian Risley. Uh, and I wanted to send a photo to Ian to make sure that he knew that when I was in Brisbane, I watered his tree. Good move. <laughs> I, won't, I, won't, uh, I won't share with you his response. 
Uh, let me just say it was an Australian response. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so I, I think the program, the Peace Centre program, is a fabulous program. Every year, I'm amazed at how many people apply. We're just going through the selection process or the evaluation process. I don't have the precise figures, but over the last few years, every year we have around a thousand applicants. Uh, we narrow that down through an evaluation process to five or 600. Uh, and then we, we narrow that down to the, uh, the 50 master's students that we select and the 80 uh, short-term programs uh, scholars that we that we select. Um, it's a great program. Uh, as I said before, I think we're beginning to see uh, real significant dividends. Um, people are in positions of responsibility. We have uh, a lot of Peace Fellows involved in projects. They are uh, aligning with Rotary. They're doing their own projects. Um, peace is in Rotary's DNA. Now, going right back to the beginning of Rotary, uh, peace was an important event. And shortly after Rotary started in 1905, the First World War broke out. And the overriding concern of Rotarians around that time was the need for peace. And after the war was over in 1918, in 1921, Rotarians uh, met at the International Convention in Edinburgh and passed the resolution calling for Rotarians to promote international understanding, peace and goodwill. And those words, international understanding, peace and goodwill, have been enshrined in the, the fourth element of Rotary's object ever since. They are the basis of the Rotary Foundation. Next year, we will celebrate the centenary of that part of the, the object. Um, and as you know, Rotary became heavily involved in, in the United Nations. We, were, we passed a resolution in 1940 calling for respect for human rights. That led to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, one of the most significant documents signed last century. Uh, we were involved uh, in passing the resolution which led to UNESCO. In 1944, President Truman and Prime Minister Churchill decided that it was time to start working on creating an organization that would prohibit war for all time. Rotary was one of a very small number of organizations who were invited to contribute lawyers and specialists to the drafting process. When I look back over Rotary's history, and I've done a lot of reading, uh, Rotary's influence in the world was probably at its peak in the 30s and 40s. This was a very prestigious organization. In those days, the classification criteria were fairly strictly applied. You had to be the chief executive or the managing partner or the general manager uh, of an organization to be admitted into Rotary. And of course, at that time, it was male only. So it was a very highly regarded, uh, prestigious organization. And because it was so international, um, and in those days, there were no non-governmental organizations. The concept of a non-governmental organization was quite unknown. Now there are thousands of NGOs, uh, but in those days, uh, we were virtually the first. So Rotary and the Red Cross were the first two organizations to be granted consultative status 
with the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations. And we continue to have an active association with, with the United Nations through the Rotary Representative Network. Um, we, uh, we have appointed Rotarian ambassadors with a small a uh, to, to UNESCO, to UNICEF, to the UN Commission on Women, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UN Environment Programme, and to many other international organizations, the World Bank, the European Union, the Commonwealth of Nations, the Arab League, the African Union. Uh, and as I said, we have around 32, I think, representatives in Rome, in Paris, in Brussels, in Geneva, in Addis Ababa, in Cairo, Nairobi, um, of course, in New York and, and Washington. I, you asked about Nairobi, just a, a quick story. Uh, two years ago, we had a Rotary Day at the United Nations headquarters in Africa, which are in Nairobi. And I was part of the planning team. While I was in Nairobi, I asked to meet with representatives of the UN Environment Programme, which is based in Nairobi. Five young people came into the room, all young environmental activist looking people. Unbeknown to us, the leader of the team was a Rotary Peace Fellow from New Zealand. <laughs> Doesn't get much better than that. The second person was a former Rotary Ambassadorial Scholar. The third person was the president of one of the local Rotary clubs. We had prepared our Rotary elevator speech. We didn't need it. They knew all about Rotary. And they came with a list of 25 projects, environmental projects, which they thought might be of interest to clubs and districts around the Rotary world. That led to a meeting between President Barry Rasson and the Chief Executive of the UN Environment. That led to a meeting between John Hugo, the Chief Executive of Rotary, and senior officials of the UN Environment. And that led to a decision uh, to, to establish a task force to prepare an environmental toolkit, uh, a publication uh, which could be used by clubs and districts around the world to identify potential environmental projects, how to implement them, how to evaluate, how to monitor them, this was prepared by staff in Evanston, by the staff in Nairobi, uh, and by the Environmental Sustainable Rotary Action Group. Um, the publication uh, was issued in Hamburg at the International Convention last year. You can download it. It's on the Rotary website. It's a very professional publication, and it's a great tool for clubs. And particularly now that environment is one of our areas of focus, I encourage you to uh, look for the toolkit and use it. And we are hoping to develop similar toolkits for the other areas of focus with the other UN bodies. So uh, that's another exciting dimension on the international front. Wow, Peter, I really enjoyed hearing about Rotary's history in um, advancing world peace and how the Rotary Peace Fellows are uh, one of the elements that um, you, and that Rotary uses to advance that mission to today. Um, so Rotary, as you've mentioned, has an amazing history to build humanitarian work in peace. Um, and they continue to stay relevant today in peace building. So what is exciting about Rotary today? If you would share with us some of the most relevant um, stepping stones for Rotary recently. Um, well, very quickly, one of the most exciting recent developments 
is the selection of Jennifer Jones as our first female president. That is an awesome uh, choice. She is an outstanding uh, person, very strong rotary background, very impressive in every respect. And I think this is going to have a, a, an amazing impact. Uh, she's a great role model, a great ambassador for rotary. This will have a great impact on, on female recruitment and female involvement in Rotary. Uh, I'm excited that environment is an area of focus. I'm excited about the role that Rotaract is now playing. Uh, we've elevated Rotary, uh, Rotaract, and there are many initiatives between Rotaract and Rotary. I think that's exciting. We are in the process of developing um, recommendations regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think you're going to hear more about that. On the peace building front, and I, I see one of the questions in the chat box, um, I've, I've long believed uh, that Rotary and Rotarians uh, have not just a role, but a responsibility uh, in communities. We have become a very divided society, uh, not just in the United States, in many parts of the world, but perhaps more so in the United States. Um, and I think Rotary and Rotarians uh, have the capacity, have the ability, have the resources to play uh, a role in helping to bridge uh, the divide, helping to bridge divisions uh, by getting involved in a range of, of peace building activities. I'm quite excited. I've been hoping to do this for some time, but I'm in the process of rolling out an initiative in my zones, 33 and 34, which is the eastern part of the United States. Uh, it's called Rotary Plus Youth Plus Peace in Action. 100,000 young community peace builders. And the idea is that for each of the 31 zones, and you can see them, 31 districts, and you can see them on the screen, uh, we will have a whole series of peace building events in schools, in places of employment, in homes involving young people, rotaractors, interactors. Um, and I think, I, I hope uh, that the, the cumulative impact of these initiatives, and, and you'll be hearing, well, the two zones will be hearing more about this over, over the next few months. I think that uh, that will have a, a, I hope will have a significant impact. We need to be much more intentional about engaging with law enforcement with the faith community, with education superintendents, with health authorities, with civic leaders generally. Um, we have a fabulous, a tremendous brand. We've been going for 115 years. Uh, we, we have uh, people with strong professional, vocational backgrounds of all sorts. Uh, amongst our, our 1.2 million, we have many, many people uh, who are in a position uh, to play a role in, in helping Rotary to advance its objectives uh, more widely. And I, 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 I'd like to think that Rotary will up its game uh, and will become, uh, will have a higher profile. Uh, we need to be more engaged in thought leadership. Uh, I'd like to see uh, Rotary and Rotarians holding more seminars on trafficking issues, uh, the drug opioid crisis, domestic violence, gun violence, 
these are the issues that communities are struggling with. <coughs> and I think Rotary and Rotarians uh, have, the <coughs> have the ability, have the resources to play a significant role uh, in helping communities deal with some of these, these social justice issues. That's a, a brilliant point you're making there, Peter. Uh, bless you. Uh, so um, that was actually uh, symbolized or um, manifested in Rotary leaders um, in, who were in Virginia, I believe, uh, who uh, led community initiatives uh, in Ferguson and uh, Charles, uh, Charles Charlottesville. Um, events. So can you share with us uh, that example of how Rotarians could be thought leaders for their communities in practice? Like that is a great example that if you can share with, with, with us. I don't know so much about uh, Ferguson, Missouri or, or the situation in Charlottesville, but just to give you an example closer to my home, a couple of years ago in Baltimore, there were a series of riots quite, quite serious. Uh, at that time, uh, there were moves to engage the Rotary Clubs in and around Baltimore uh, to uh, come together uh, and lend their, their resources and their, uh, their support uh, to, the, to the civic leaders at the time um, and we, I tried to get Outward Bound involved. Outward Bound has a presence in Baltimore, and I, I always try and find reasons to bring Rotary and Outward Bound together because that, they're my two passions. Um, in the end, it didn't work out, but it's an example, I think, of, of what Rotary can do. Um, we can do a lot of little things in local communities, but when we band together, when some clubs can band together either in districts or with other districts. Uh, the resources that we bring to bear, the credibility that we have, the, the, the reputation, the stature, uh, particularly if we have uh, senior community officials as part of the organization. Uh, that gives us more than just a seat at the table. It gives us uh, an ability uh, to really influence uh, the outcome of events. So that's why I, I, I love the fact that we have so many Rotaract clubs and that Rotaract, Rotaractors are uh, passionate about some of these issues. And if Rotary and Rotaractors can work together, their youth, their enthusiasm, their passion, their technological know-how, and our money and our white hair, it's a match made in heaven. Uh, so I'd like to see much more of that uh, moving forward. And I think while I'm on the board, if there's anything I can do to move in that direction, I will try very hard to do so. Thank you, Peter. Well, uh, we have many people uh, asking questions. So this is um, three o'clock. So maybe we we'll can start uh, from questions from the audience. That was really great um, way to transition. So I will start with a um, question from Mark of um, Harpison. He's saying, Aloha, Peter. We could have an interesting discussion about privatization in the USSR, but I am much more interested in your views about scaling up the Rotary Foundation grants program from um, 0K to, uh, I don't know, 00K to 0 million or 0M. I don't know if that 
if I can find the question from Mark. A hundred thousand, a uh, hundred thousand payroll. I, I don't understand the symbolism, Mark. So maybe basically the gist of the question is really how can we raise the foundation uh, grants program money? Uh, well, the, the Rotary Foundation uh, depends on contributions from Rotarians. Um, it's been a very successful foundation uh, we have uh, hundreds of global grants and district grants every year all around the world. Uh, it has enabled Rotary to really make a significant impact, uh, particularly in the developing world. Uh, while I was at the World Bank, I had the good fortune to be able to visit many Rotary clubs in, in Africa, in Asia, in other parts of the world. And often you would see uh, the Rotary logo outside a, a, a village or a community, uh, and there'd be a school or a water well or, or some evidence of, of rotary presence. Um, and we shouldn't underestimate that. That, that gives rotary a lot of credibility. Uh, when we're raising money for polio, senior rotary representatives go to the, the governments of the world uh, every year, very high level Rotary delegation goes to the United States Congress uh, to seek support for the polio initiative. Invariably, we are successful. And the same is true from other countries in the world. And in large part, it's because of the reputation that Rotary has, the hundreds of projects and the fact that we have been involved for 115 years and for some 30 years in the case of polio. Uh, so those contributions, I think, are very, very important. I'd like to see bigger projects, more impactful projects, and we're, we're moving in that direction. We may take a bit of a, a hit this year because of the pandemic, both in terms of membership and in terms of the foundation, but we've been in this situation before. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a statistician on the staff, and on the board recently we were showing a graph of how Rotary has grown from 1905 and how uh, at various points, inflection points, there was an impact on growth. The First World War, the Depression, the Second World War, and other events. And at each of those points, there was a, if you like, a, a stabilizing, even a slight dip in the growth, both of membership and then more recently in, in, in the foundation. But over time, after a year or so, the upward trend continued until we got to 1.2 million, where unfortunately we've been stuck, as we all know, for the last uh, 15 or 20 years. Although we are actively involved, there are a number of initiatives underway this year to try and get that number from 1.2 to 1.3. So uh, uh, I'm optimistic that those those will those will pay out. So I, I think I, I think it's for me the, the Rotary Foundation is the foundation of choice. I. Every year we get a four-star rating from Charity Navigator, which is the body in America that evaluates the efficiency of foundations such as Rotary. Um, because of my position, uh, I, I know the staff. We have, we have an amazingly dedicated, competent staff in Evanston and around the world in our other international offices. Um, so the quality of the projects, the the evaluation 
uh, that is given, I think, is of a very high order. Uh, so the, the foundation is a very well-run, uh, well-oiled machine, well-financed. Uh, we need more funds to be able to do more projects, and, and we'll, we'll continue to raise funds. Rotarians have been amazingly generous. Uh, just a, as a, a side comment, uh, the Rotary Peace Center program, uh, I think we have around $170 million in the Rotary uh, Peace Endowment account. Uh, that's contributions from Rotarians, cash and bequests. Uh, and in the not too distant future, the Rotary Foundation, the Rotary Peace Center program will be self-sustaining. Uh, and that's a tribute to the, to the, the belief that Rotarians have in the worth of that project, uh, in how well uh, they perceive that it is implemented. Uh, and and I'm, I'm confident that once the pandemic uh, uh, is out of the way, and hopefully that will be sooner rather than later, the, the upward curve of recruitment and giving to the foundation will continue. Great. A great follow-up question is by William Thomas, who's asking, from your international experience with projects funded through the World Bank, are there any principles that may be re relative to Rotary International projects? Is there any commonality between the projects you've uh, funded through the World Bank and Rotary? Is there any? Well, the, the projects funded by the World Bank uh, are very large projects, millions of dollars, in some cases, billions of dollars. But I think the principles are much the same. Uh, they all involve inputs, outputs, uh, results. Uh, they all involve uh, sustainability, monitoring and evaluation. So I think the principles are much the same. Uh, there are less zeros uh, in, the, in the rotary projects. Um, but they receive the same degree of analysis by the staff, uh, very careful analysis. Uh, we, are, we are very, very uh, protective of our brand. Uh, we do not want to uh, give out money for inappropriate purposes. Uh, we want the projects to be successful. We go to great lengths to dot the I's and cross the T's Sometimes that can be frustrating to the uh, uh, Rotarians who are involved in putting projects together. Uh, but I think it's important that the projects pass muster. Uh, we evaluate the projects. We have a cadre, a technical cadre, who um, are constantly involved in evaluating the uh, implementation of projects. Um, so I think Rotarians can have confidence that the Rotary Foundation is well organized, well funded. Uh, the projects that are approved uh, have a high degree of success. I won't say that 100% are successful. We are dependent on, on human nature and uh, factors sometimes beyond our control. But I think the, the degree of success with projects, the success ratio has continued to go up and up uh, over the last uh, 20 years. And I think that will continue as, as people get more experience uh, and better able to uh, develop robust, uh, viable projects. Interesting. 
So um, again, um, another great question from Richard uh, Denton. He says, thank you, Peter, for telling us about your very interesting life and story. What is the Rotary Representative Network doing to promote peace at the General Assembly at the UN? How does Rotary utilize its NGO position at the General Assembly? Or maybe the UN in general, how, how would you address? As I mentioned, we have uh, currently, I think, 32 representatives. Uh, some are with the UN, some are with the other organizations that I mentioned. Um, and there's a twofold role. Uh, partly, the aim is to increase awareness of what Rotary is all about, what we're trying to achieve, um, open doors. Uh, and then on the other side, uh, it's to identify ways that we can benefit from this relationship. Everything we do in Rotary is designed to strengthen clubs and districts. And so the, one of the aims of the, of the network is to take advantage of the relationship, let's say, with UNICEF. How do they carry out community assessments? How does UNESCO carry out projects? How does UNHCR evaluate projects? We can learn from their experience. We don't need their money. That's not to say we wouldn't welcome their money, but we don't, we're not looking for money. We are looking to expand our reach, uh, to engage with the international community, uh, uh, to work towards uh, achieving the sustainable development goals, which are the, the internationally accepted development goals of the world. Um, and we have all sorts of links at different levels. Um, I don't want to overstate Rotary's influence. We are one of thousands of organizations that have consultative status with the United Nations. Um, I think we do have a high reputation. Every year we have a Rotary Day at the UN, usually in New York. Three years ago it was in Geneva. And as I mentioned, it was in Nairobi. Um, and because of our history, uh, we have usually been able to attract the Secretary General or some very senior official of the UN as a guest speaker. Um, so I think our, our credibility, uh, the, the regard in which we've been held because of the polio initiative has given us a, a credibility, a status with the UN. Uh, I, I don't want to say that Rotary is actively promoting peace um, in the Arab-Israeli area. There are a lot of individual initiatives in that area and other parts of the world. And I think the cumulative impact is to portray Rotary as a strong, viable, peace-building organization which has earned a respectable status in the international peace-building community. And, and I see that continuing. We're getting more involved in refugee internally displaced person uh, issues. Um, that's all part of uh, the Rotary contribution to humanity. Thank you, Peter. Uh, so there's some, a couple questions about your uh, career in the World Bank. One from uh, John Pearson. Uh, it's an interesting question. He says, thank you, a very admirable uh, career. Um, I have been saddened by the results of the privatization in the former USSR. The wealth of that nation <clears throat> seems to have been handed to individuals and created instant billionaires. 
how did that happen? In, in retrospect, uh, do you think the laws enabling privatization was sufficient, appropriate? What might have been done differently? So if he is reflecting on, on the intervention of the World Bank to privatize the, the Soviet Union after the collapse and if, if there's something that could have been done differently because the obvious situation now is, is not, is better, but not that great. Well, that's, that's a big issue, and it raises lots and lots of issues, and I don't know that I have the time to get into that. We, we created a voucher system. Uh, all property in the Soviet Union was owned by everybody, and we had to find a way to transfer ownership of the productive assets to the private sector in order to enable the foreign investors to come in. So we did that by creating a voucher system. Everybody over the age of 10 in Russia received a voucher. If you had a bachelor's degree, you might, have, you might be entitled to three vouchers. If you had a PhD, you might get 10. If you were a general in the army, you might get 20. There was a stratified system. So when it came time to bid for, let's say, a laundry or a hairdresser, a hairdressing shop, which was being privatized, the local authorities would invite bids. And what would happen is that someone who really wanted the laundry uh, would uh, get the vouchers from their wife, their mother, their father, their grandfather, their cousin, their neighbors, uh, and get as many vouchers as possible. And then they'd go to the auction and they would bid 200 vouchers or 300, whatever it was. And other people would do the same. And like any other auction, the person with the most vouchers was and the ownership of that entity was then transferred to that person. So what happened um, on, a, on a macro scale, some of the very large assets, of course, were very attractive uh, to people. And, and many people, uh, many smart people were able to take advantage of, of the system. They, they, they worked the market and they were able to access uh, thousands of vouchers. I'm simplifying, it's more complicated than this, but I'm simplifying, uh, and, and they were able to get access to really high value assets, uh, the right to export particular products or the right to import or um, big factories. Uh, and, and that in essence is how the oligarchs uh, came about. And they were able to, uh, I won't say gain the system because we created the market system and they took advantage of the market system in a way Again, I'm, I'm getting into delicate ground here, and I, I don't want to um, go beyond my, my rotary confines, but in a way, they were able to take advantage of the laws and regulations that we, uh, we devised, in, and they were, they were passed by the Russian parliament, they were adopted by the Russians. Uh, so they created the legal system, um, and, and they relied very heavily on their own European legal traditions. Uh, you know, this was the West coming in with uh, the US economic system, the UK system, laws from uh, common law countries, uh, that we found it quite difficult sometimes to persuade those who had a civil law tradition, European law tradition, to accept those principles. 
they 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 wanted to rely on their own um, their own methods to develop the legal framework. And sometimes that was that worked well. Sometimes it didn't work well. That's the same with any any economy. We're constantly refining our laws, upgrading our laws, amending them to deal with unforeseen circumstances. That's all part of the normal uh, legal process. It was probably more pronounced in Russia because the legal system was at a much lower level of development. They didn't have the the market system, the, the private sector uh, range of laws, which uh, in this part of the world we take for granted. Absolutely. Just to add, doing nothing uh, back then was not even an option either because a uh, humanitarian crisis, people were starving, uh, people needed health. So what the World Bank did was basic economic development and uh, really responding to a humanitarian crisis that uh, resulted because of the Soviet Union collapse. So just to put things in perspective, that was the intervention then. Uh, so thanks, Peter, though, for the detailed um, um, examples, simplified examples, because that gives us an insight to the complexity of, of that context. Um, another, another question from Michael. He says, Michael Caruso, uh, he says, Peter, Thank you for sharing today. Um, do you feel that there is an ideal or preferred percentage mix of socialism and capitalism that results in the most equitable government system for all citizens? So it's a philosophical Michael. question. Uh, Michael, that's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> it's a very subjective uh, issue. Um, and the answer is I, I don't know. I mean, socialism, the term socialism is bandied around and it's given a bit of a bad name. When I grew up in New Zealand, we had 3 million people, 9 million cows and 60 million sheep. Um, but the 3 million people, uh, we needed to have a, a very strong uh, active government. I think 25% of the population, the working population in New Zealand at that time was employed by the state. So in that sense, it was a very socialist uh, economy. At the time, that percentage has gone down dramatically, partly as a result of privatization. Um, um, there's a role for the state in, in most countries. I think in every country, uh, the state has a role. Um, most countries have decided that when it comes to manufacturing and, and production of things, the private sector is usually, not always, but usually better able to um, handle uh, manufacturing and production. But there are some core, core aspects of any society that have to remain under state control. Um, whether one can say that uh, socialism or some other form is better or worse, I, I, I'm not confident to answer that. I think that's, uh, that's way beyond my pay grade. Yeah. Uh, so now, um, moving from the uh, uh, Russia to the U.S., uh, you have a question from Tom Schneider. He's asking about the U.S. He's saying, you've experienced the U.S. in the early 1970s. Today, the divisiveness is so intense in U.S. socially and uh, at the political level. It's very difficult to have a substantial conversation with someone 
who isn't on the same side of an issue. How do you see um, we as Rotarians uh, can assist in finding middle ground and civility so we can talk to each other again? So in the context of the US. Right. Well, I, I tried to touch on that a little while ago. Um, I, I really do think that Rotarians, because of the, uh, the respect in which we are held, um, the, the value of our brand, the resources that we can bring to bear, uh, we, we do have a role uh, to play in, in communities in encouraging peace-building initiatives. Uh, I, I don't want to claim that Rotary is the answer to everything, uh, but in, in lots of small ways, in lots of small towns and big towns across America, I think there is potential for Rotarians to team up with, um, with others. We can't do this alone. <laughs> we need to team up with uh, other uh, civic leaders. Uh, and I, I, I think there are many examples of, of that that's what's actually happening uh, and, what, and the potential for more. Uh, it's not going to change overnight. We're not going to change opinions overnight. Uh, but I, I do think every Rotary Club, every Rotarian should be thinking about ways in which uh, <coughs> in their own way, in their own, uh, own, in their own location, what can they do to help bring about a more peaceful environment? Bless you. I often ask, what can I, as, as a single individual, do? And I would encourage you to go on to the Rotary Learning Centre. Uh, you can, uh, there are some great programmes on the Learning Centre. I think there are over 700 courses you can do. <coughs> this is one of the great features of Rotary. And you can obtain a certificate as a peace builder uh, having qualified, having completed uh, the course. And that will give you ideas as to what you can do uh, for the homeless, what you can do for other, um, other groups in your communities uh, that are suffering in one form or another, whether it's in schools, whether it's uh, helping to refurbish homes. Um, I, I think we're all aware of the sort of projects we can do. And I think we just need to be seen to be more actively involved. I, I, I hope, I long for the day when, when Rotary is perceived all around the world as the service organization of choice, uh, that people want to join Rotary because they see it as a vehicle uh, through which they can channel some of their resources, their time, their treasure, uh, and make a difference. And I think if we all, if we all felt that way, if we all contributed, in that in that way, uh, over time, I think the world would be a better place. Um, maybe I'm being a bit optimistic, and I think part of the, the secret source are the young people, the rotary actors and the interactors. They don't have the baggage that we do. Uh, they have the enthusiasm, the idealism, the passion, which we all had 30, 40, 50 years ago. But uh, we're on to a different phase in our lives. Now we need to encourage them, um, involve them in our activities, involve them every which way we can. Every committee should have a rotor actor. Um, and I think you will find uh, that that will benefit the, whatever the project is, enormously.
Thank you, Peter. Uh, we have so many questions, so I apologize for everyone who I couldn't take their question uh, because of time. I'd like to just wrap up with a, a nice comment uh, from the attendees, uh, one of the attendees. He's saying, Peter, more of a comment um, and not a question. I'd like to commend you on your emphasis on out uh, word bound and the lessons of fortitude, self-reliance and optimism it has and continues to teach. These are vital qualities that are universally successful. Thanks, uh, thank you for helping to spread that message and for your life support of such qualities in all people. So on that note, I'd like to ask you my last question before we wrap this up. What's your, oh, yeah. dream, for our, what's your dream for our world, uh, Peter? What is the impact that you would, have, would like to have on the world? Uh, you've had a lot of impact already. So what is, the, what is it that you hope? Uh, I, mean, I, I think it would be uh, uh, I don't know that I'm in a position to make any greater impact on the world than anybody else. I think we, it behoves us all. We, we, we are all very fortunate. My generation in particular, um, we, I'm a post-World War II child, um, and I've had 40 or 50 years of uh, relative prosperity and relative peace. I think uh, the current generation has challenges that, that we did not have. We had other challenges, I suppose. But I think, I think every one of us has a responsibility to do what we can in our own way, whether it's in our church, uh, in our job, in our home, uh, to, uh, to leave the world a better place, uh, get engaged in activities. I go back to the lesson from the Governor General in New Zealand a long time ago. Uh, life is not a spectator sport. We need to engage. We need to contribute. We need to work with others. Uh, we need uh, perhaps a lot more kindness and empathy and civility uh, than uh, we see around us at the, at the present time. Um, and, and over time, I think uh, uh, all of us uh, can make a contribution in a different way. Um, that's not terribly profound. Uh, if you give me another half an hour, I might come up with a slightly more inspiring answer that on the spur of the moment, that's about as best as I can do. So uh, it was profound, Peter. You just have way higher standards than normal. <laughs> so um, with this uh, inspiring comments from Peter, um, we'd like to wrap this up. So I'd like to just say that through Peter's experiences, we've learned about the vital role of international organizations to enhance the systems, structures, and attitudes for peace uh, at all levels. We've also learned that all we are, um, that all uh, um, we are more capable, that we are all more capable than we think if we challenge ourselves to rise to the occasion, just like Peter. We are so lucky to have such a selfless and exemplary world leader like Peter, who is mission-driven on positive impact while being genuinely kind, humble, and charming to all who cross his path. Thank you all again for joining us for another fascinating conversation on Together for Peace with Peter uh, this week. 
uh, with your generous and dedicated participation together for peace has been a wonderful success in creating captivating conversations for peace building worldwide. Thank you for helping together for peace realize the power of turning our living rooms into platforms for positive peace, education, collaboration, and action. Please join us next week when we interview Dr. Harry Anastasio, a professor of peace at Portland State University. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, keep your smile big and your heart open. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone, and continue to wage peace. Um, thank you all. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Reem. I've enjoyed the experience very much. Me too. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>